Welcome to the No Plateau Podcast. For stroke and brain injury survivors, their caregivers, and the therapists helping them to break boundaries in their recovery journey. Hosted by Henry Hoffman, occupational and clinical therapist, this podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And now, here's Henry Hoffman. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the No Plateau Podcast. I am your host, Henry Hoffman. I'm thrilled to be with you today. Today, we are going to talk about spasticity treatment following stroke. For many patients, spasticity rears its ugly head soon after stroke, and it's a tough nut to crack. Up to 40% of uh, first-time stroke patients suffer from uh, spasticity, so it is a big deal. To help me discuss this topic, I invited Dr. Samuel Milton to join me on the show, and he graciously accepted. He is a physiatrist working at Emory in Atlanta. He received his medical degree from Howard University College of Medicine and have been practicing for more than 20 years. So Dr. Milton, welcome. Well, welcome. Thank you. And not to date myself, but over 30 years. Uh-oh. Okay. Well, I tried to be, for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to be extra nice with you on that one. Uh, how are you doing today? And thanks Thank for you. joining, by the way. I'm doing very well, and I'm very excited to talk about this topic. All right. Well, great. Well, let's first just, if you don't mind, just talk a little bit brief, uh, brief background about you so the audience, which is made up of both patients and clinicians, can learn a little bit more. Sure. So after I finished my residency training at National Rehab Hospital, I've always been involved in a teaching uh, academic uh, type of practice with inpatient and outpatient, but mostly running stroke rehab units, uh, which has led me to my current position at uh, Emory as an associate professor. I currently manage the inpatient stroke and brain injury unit for Emory, which is about 20 bed unit. And I also have an outpatient practice where I manage patients who have chronic stroke deficits as well. Spasticity is one of the areas that I find fascinating and interesting, and I see many patients who have issues because of spasticity. Yeah, well, again, it's it's a pleasure having you. And, you know, we're going to talk a lot about spasticity now. And, and obviously with normal muscles, this is for the patients and the therapist. The brain inhibits most reflexes when when we're dealing with normal muscles. But following an upper neuron injury, like a stroke, uh, the patients go through the classic, you know, Brunstrom recovery stages. Some people know it as Brunstrom. Some people know it as recovery stages or healing stages. But you go through this process of flaccidity to emerging spasticity and to hopefully, if they don't get stuck at that stage, to breaking out of synergy or breaking out of that uh, spastic nature and, and performing some more isolated functional tasks. But the major problem, as you know, is the loss of supraspinal control from these reflexes. And the spinal reflex activity is normally, you know, tightly regulated. And if inhibitory control is lost, the balance is tipped. Uh, obviously, you're going to have this hyperexcitability of the spinal reflexes. So, imagine constantly, folks, lifting up a 50-pound dumbbell uh, during your waking hours. That's not going to be fun. It's not going to be comfortable. A buddy of mine and a purveyor of stroke recovery, the late Pete uh, Levine, you know, he used to preach the muscles, the victim, and the brains, the perpetrator. Uh, you know, from our perspective, it's the brain issue and it's not a muscle problem. Uh, and you really just have to rewire. And that's that's what I want to dive into. But from your perspective, you've been doing this a long time. How do you describe spasticity to your patients? What's the best way to describe it to a patient? Because some people, it takes like 20, 30 minutes just to get to the definition. And then they end up saying, and, and there's still a lot that we just don't know. So how do you typically describe spasticity to patients? Uh, that's correct. First of all, I have to make patients understand and their caregivers understand that we all have normal tone. We're not 
floppy or we're not flaccid, but, but all, all people have normal tone. What's interesting about spasticity from a cerebral origin, like a stroke, is a little different than other types of spasticity that you may see with multiple sclerosis. And you described it pretty well with that synergistic movement pattern, meaning that both, well, when we, when we execute a movement, uh, one muscle actually shortens the, the joint while the other muscle relaxes to allow that joint to be uh, shortened. So the brain has a on-off mechanism that allows fluidity of our movements. So when, the, when we have a patient who's had a stroke, we lose that fluidity where both muscles are on at the same time. So they're both fighting each other. They're both in, in synergy, meaning they're both contracting at the same time. So they have a very specific type of spasticity um, that, is, that is unique and obviously very challenging. Why do you think when we see spasticity in patients come into the clinic, it's typically in a flexor pattern? And I know mechanically the flexors are stronger than the extensors. And, you know, some argue that there's spasticity in both the flexors and extensors, but the flexors are winning. Or they'll say it's that, you know, there's an overexcitation of a certain descending pathway. Why is the flexors typically the spastic muscle? Right. Generally, those are the anti-gravity muscles. So those muscles that fight gravity uh, are the ones that tend to be spastic. For example, if you, even if you look into the upper extremity, they're going to, you're going to see a Stroke patients we're going to have a classic, what we call a flexor synergy, flex at the elbow, flex at the wrist, hand uh, in a fisted posture. The lower extremity is the opposite, where the leg goes into extension and the gastrox is, is so in other words, the foot is pointing, pointing downward. So I look at it as the muscles that typically fight gravity every day. Our muscles aren't equal in strength. So those muscles that fight gravity every day are much stronger than the muscles that don't. So if you look at your arm, for example, your, the muscles that actually grip something, like if you're going to hammer something or play tennis, well, naturally, you want those muscles stronger than those muscles that want to release. So those muscles that tend to fight gravity or be those strong flexors will be stronger than those extensors. But we don't know that on a day-in-day-out basis because our brain controls how we, how we move and they control the, the, the fine coordination of these muscles and how they interact. It's almost like you're already fighting a losing battle just because the flexors are stronger than the extensors. When we, if you ever lived in a, thir a third story walk up and you have groceries, you're going to hook them with all your fingers into a flexed grip and start, you're not going to carry them with your extensors. So we're already fighting a losing battle because the flexors are so stronger than the extensors. And then of course you have a stroke and you go from the stages of flaccid to emerging spasticity. And you start to see those fingers go into flexion. And then the hope is over time, through which we'll get into uh, through some treatment interventions, we can kind of break out of that uh, spastic pattern and get some more recovery there. So moving on to common treatments. Now, if we can just think about it from a medical perspective, the different buckets of treatment. So if, I don't want to say too much because you're the guest and you're the one who's the expert in spasticity. So if you could just describe the large buckets as far as surgical, chemo denervation, just oral, pharmacological, what are the major buckets? So a patient comes to you and they have spasticity, you know, what are the solutions and options for them? Well, the, the, the first bucket I always think of is, is, is therapy. So that's, that's the very first bucket. And then depending on the patterns of spasticity, we move into oral medications as one method of treatment, depending on the type of spasticity. And then uh, more recently, which became FDA approved, you look at chemo de denervation where you look, this is more designed to treat focal spasticity. 
uh, one or two uh, muscle groups. Then the last option, well, I don't want to say last option, but another option would be uh, surgical intervention when you're releasing tendons. Sometimes, depending on the expertise of the, of the surgeon, they'll do transfer of tendons or to take advantage of some of the overactive, overactive muscles or a combination of all of these above, all of the above. And uh, that's how I look at it mostly now is a combination of all of the above. Okay. And so we've all had patients, whether they come in with uh, a baclofen, you know, it's more systemic, uh, or you're using a medication versus a focal. How do you determine if you're going to give a patient a medication versus going with a focal chemo? You know, one, one of the examples is Botox. It's not the only one but that's the one that all the patients commonly know and, and have heard. How would you determine who's going to get medication versus getting Botox, for example? Well, well, first of all, you have to appreciate whether or not the patient has more generalized spasticity. So in other words, if they are fighting with spasticity in their leg as well as their arm, it's going to be very difficult to try to address with Botox every spastic muscle many times. So you may want to attack it using a systemic agent to try to then isolate or make more prevalent those muscles that you can now address with Botox. There's a limitation of how much Botox you can give safely. So if a patient has diffuse spasticity, I'm going to uh, offer a oral agent first and then use the focal treatments with, the, with chemo, uh, chemo denervation or Botox. With the medication route, what are like one or two of the common side effects if, if a patient wants to get medication for systemic, you know, upper and lower extremity spasticity? Well, the most common medications that we use, uh, baclofen or tizanidine, we also use some anticonvulsants um, that can help, but they all have, they all act centrally. What that implies is that many times these central acting agents can cause drowsiness and make people actually feel weaker. Sometimes they don't tolerate these, these side effects whatsoever. Uh, especially when you're looking at a patient who's had a stroke, which is a type of a brain injury. So you, the, the patients had a stroke are already struggling with some neurocognitive and neuropsychiatric issues from the stroke, and then you add a medication that has a central action, then it can be challenging for them to tolerate that. And that's what, we, what problems we have many times in trying to use a, a medication in patients who've had stroke is that by the time they get to a level where it's helping, unfortunately, don't tolerate these sedative side effects. At that time, uh, we're left at trying to use other modalities, which will primarily would be chemo denervation. I've even have had patients who've had strokes have an intrathecal back of the pump because their spasticity is so severe in their lower extremities. Many times, if you can take care of the bigger problem, then you can focus the, the neurolytics on the on the focal problem. So before we jump into the neurolytics, can you briefly explain what intrathecal baclofen pumps uh, are and, and how do they actually implement that? So uh, intrathecal baclofen pumps, we usually reserve that for patients who have severe spasticity. So how that type of treatment works is that there's a catheter that goes into the space of the spinal cord, the intrathecal space where the fluid is, and we actually administer baclofen. Now, the good thing is that the baclofen there is going to be 100% bioavailable, meaning that all the medication that's being administered is, is going to exactly where it needs to go. When you take an oral baclofen, only about 30% of that actually goes to where it needs to go. So therefore, you're left dealing with the sedation and the, 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 
the, you know, the fogginess, the brain fog that's associated with the oral medication, where we're using a hundredth of a dose. So instead of a milligram with intrathecal back, then you're using a microgram. So we don't have to typically worry about the sedative side effects and is very powerful in reducing spasticity, especially in the lower limb. It does require a surgical procedure, and uh, usually we do a trial first to assess whether or not this would be appropriate for the patient. Interesting. Well, let's switch gears then and talk about chemo denervation techniques. Basically, those are local injections, like you said. You know, it kind of gets a bad rap. Uh, as some patients think that they're putting poison in their body, you know, as uh, for the audience, Botox is, the, for, as an example, it's not the only one, but it's a drug made from a toxin produced by uh, a bacterium, Clostridium, right? Botulinum, uh, foodborne intoxication. And it can cause life-threatening type of uh, food poisoning called botulism. So can you discuss exactly what neurolytics are? And obviously I brought up Botox as an example and maybe curb the fear that some of these patients may have regarding, hey, you're injecting poison into your body? Sure, sure. So first of all, you're right. Botulinum is, is derived uh, from a, cl a Clostridio botulinum, which is a bacteria. It's in soil. It's actually ubiquitous to, in the soil so that anytime we eat fresh vegetables, we actually consume a little bit of this all the time. Botulism becomes a problem or poisonous when someone does not can, a, uh, say, peaches or, or can a, uh, uh, something very well. And then those spores or toxins just multiply and multiply. So you really have to consume a lot really to get sick. But it is, it is a toxin. But in how we use it in an injectable form, it's a very weak toxin. But it has a very strong effect on the membrane of the muscle. It blo blocks the receptor from releasing acetylcholine so that the muscle can no longer produce a, a response. Binds to that irreversibly. But over time, your, our nerves grow around that blockade and re-innervate that, re that muscle. But at the dosing we use is very, it's very safe. We just inject into the muscle. Do not inject into the blood vessels or anything, or anything of that matter. But usually I explain that you know, uh, botulism or the Clostridium botulinum is actually ubiquitous in our soil, and we actually are exposed to it really on a, on a frequent basis than we know. Okay, well, that's helpful to uh, for, to have that explanation. Now, what other forms are out there? Of, uh, neurolytics and community, you know, local injections should one consider besides that one? Right. If for some reason patients are allergic or cannot have um, bo um, Botox or a botulinum toxin, then alcohol injections uh, can be used. The downside about of, of using an alcohol injection is that it is a permanent blockade. So you have to, it takes a long time for the nerve to regenerate if it's going to regenerate, but it's usually an irreversible pathway because it actually destroys the, destroys the nerve. Wow, interesting. I didn't know that. So with alcohol, the potential risk is, and, and for some, this might be not a reward, but a potential risk is it's, it's not going to be just three months like you know Botox and it wears off, where it's a temporary paralytic. This is almost a permanent paralytic, if you will. Correct, correct. The benefit when I explain about um, doing it, using a botulinum toxin is that if we don't like the result, it will wear, wear off. And therefore, it, uh, but the, in using an alcohol, then it does not wear off and you have to live with that result. So sometimes that is a tough sell sometimes. So is there any other ones? I mean, I've read stuff on phenol. I mean, is there, is it just pretty much Botox? Oh. 
Phenol is, is an alcohol. So it fall under the phenol. So that's the, the brand, right? So those are the two major ones. There are there are um, two or three brands of uh, botulinum toxin on the on the market, and phenol is the alcohol that we use for those types of, of injections. Sometimes you can use a combination of both. Oh, really? Yes. So in my practice, many times, uh, if the patient has a really tight peck, and um, I use phenol there so that I can reserve the Botox in the lower arm where I may need, a, uh, may need it. So um, I have used both in combination in, in, in the past. Okay. And what percentage of your patients get phenol versus Botox? A very small percentage. Uh, phenol, you have to have the capacity to store it. It has a very short half-life. So I would say that's a very small percentage, like less than 5%. So most of my patients I'll use a brand of botulinum toxin primarily. Okay. And as far as their number one complaint, are they coming because, what percentage are coming because it's a painful problem versus it's a tight problem? Excellent question. And and, and it can be a combination of, of, of both things. However, since you mentioned that, really wasn't really important when you're looking at a treatment plan using either medications or injectables or anything like that is that you, you want to have a goal in mind. Where do you, what are you, the therapist, the patient, and caregiver, what are you trying to, to, to accomplish? The referral can be from a therapist because they're struggling with getting a patient fitted for a um, orthosis. It can be from a family member because they are having difficulty with getting uh, a patient dressed in the morning because they can't get their arm in position or pain. They can't get deodorant under their arm. Or it can be from... Um, significant stiffness and tightness that leads to discomfort. But you, you, you like to have that conversation beforehand to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Because I do have patients who will come and say, my hand won't move. Uh, I need, Bo- I read about Botox. Well, it doesn't kind of work that way. Yeah, I know you're bringing up a good point from the therapist, the therapist side. You know, it's, this is not a fix, a cure, a panacea. The research is very clear on what um, these types of techniques can do and cannot do. Just like the research is very clear is from a therapist perspective, you know, sadly, there's not a lot of good options for reducing spasticity. And we'll talk about that in a second. But as far as, you know, positive, I guess a positive case study example for you would be, hey, doc, great. I can now um, open up my hand to do hygiene or, hey, this is wonderful. I can now sleep at night without pain in my shoulder. Or guess what? Because of this Botox, I can get my orthotic on much easier. You're probably looking at those goals as the classic success story versus, hey, I got my hand back. You probably don't hear a lot of, because of this Botox, I can now open my fingers and put on, you know, and button my shirt. You're not getting a lot of those testimonials, most likely, right? Because I'm not getting those either. Right. No, no, no you're correct. You're correct. I would say that the, the, the testimonies that you mentioned, I can get my brace on. It's not as uncomfortable, but I also get them from the caregivers who are helping them get dressed. Now I can get his shirt on without causing a lot of discomfort and pain. Um, I can get, um, you know, the hygiene is much better in the hand and underarms and things like that. So I also get it from the caregivers as well. Yep. Yep. Now there is one, I don't know if it's a myth or if it's a fact, maybe you can address it. Electrical stimulation provided to the site where the Botox was injected. Have you heard where if you do electrical stimulation where the site where the Botox were injected, let's say the finger flexors, long finger flexors, the extrinsics, that could help speed up the reaction. Is there any truth to that? 
I have not read anything other than anecdotal, nothing with any double-blind studies. I haven't really... Now, my injection technique, <laughs> again, without any evidence, is that usually after I inject, I will um, pretty aggressively stretch the muscle um, because Botox diffuses pretty readily in the muscle. And I do that uh, to help with the spread of the muscle, really stretch the muscle out as much as I can after I do an injection. Okay. But um, I have never set up a patient for immediate e-stim after an injection. Okay. Well, one, one to follow up, since you brought up your technique, you know, I've seen, and we'll, I'll explain this to the audience, uh, and you can dive deep. There's the uh, biofeedback guided injection where you're, you're looking, you're, you're waiting, you're listening or watching the signals of, of the muscle activity where it's hyperactive and to help guide where you need to go. There's ultrasound guided. What is your technique? Can you share just a, a briefly, if a patient's going to get Botox, what would they expect if they were coming to see you? Yes. So depending on the problem. So if I have a patient who has uh, more spasticity or synergistic pattern of movement that's creating problems, I will use a electrical stimulation uh, technique where I'm stimulating the muscles that I want to inject. Now, I've also had patients who've been very fortunate to gain that weaker side of recovery. In other words, they're gaining some extension, they're gaining some wrist extension, they're gaining some finger opening, but they can't realize that because the flexors are just so strong. Well, in those cases, I'll use more of a feedback uh, technique like an EMG where I'll ask the patient to open your hand, bring your wrist up, and I'm located in the flexors to see what muscles are fighting against me. And so in, in those cases, I want a finer control because I don't want to take away all that good flexion that they've gained, but I'm trying to, re trying to sort out what muscles are really fighting against them when they're trying to execute an extension or opening of the hand. So that in those cases, I tend to want to be very, very local or focal with my injection to those muscles that are particularly causing a problem. Is EMG still considered the best way to get as exact as you can before injecting? Yes. Okay. So what about the ultrasound guided? Is that? Well, I mean, I, I don't use ultrasound guided. Uh, I use EMG in STEM, um, depending on, uh, as I described, it's exactly depending on what I need to, what I need to do. Remember using the STEM method because it, the, the Botox spreads very readily in that muscle, that means I'm not really concerned about getting too much in that flexor because they're so tight. However, if I do have someone who's experiencing some movement, they're using the hand, I'll tell you a funny story in a moment, then that's when I'll use E-STEM. I had a very pleasant lady who, who had a stroke and she had her typical elbow flex posture. She comes into the office and wants Botox. And of course, I go ahead and attack those elbow flexors. And she comes in very upset with me because now she can't hold her purse in her arm because her arm extends. So, yeah. so she was pretty upset that I went after her, her arm that holds her, holds her purse. So, sure. you know, you, you want to make sure you get your patients input. Exactly. And there's benefits of having spasticity, right? It's not just always a negative where you don't want to be 100% flaccid. That's not where you want to be in your life. I'd rather be spastic than flaccid, right? Right. In this business, many times you find that um, when patients or loved ones go through uh, a scenario like this, they want the opposite. So if their hand is now starting to close, all of a sudden they say, well, I need Botox, but at the same time, their hand is just starting to close. So I may not want to jump in there and necessarily do Botox, especially if the range of motion is full, 
you know, now they're starting to get some return. Let's see where this return takes us. And if it's a problem, then we'll address it. But I generally don't jump on that right away if, there's, if they've been slow to have a, uh, like I said earlier, I've been doing this for 30 years. Every stroke victim recovers differently. I'm sure the therapists in your audience will agree. Every patient is different. But um, you sort of want to be cautious, like you said, you don't want to take away the good tone. There are some benefits to tone and spasticity. Yeah, so that brings me to the next point. You know, I don't know if you have therapists ever in your clinic when working with one of their patients to be part of the team. I know when I was treating uh, patients back in the day, and, and I did this with a lot of the uh, SABO therapists that were in different parts of the country, uh, some of them had fantastic relationships with the physiatrist. And they're working with these patients almost on a daily basis. So they know, for instance, when they were using a device called the Saboflex, that is a spring-loaded wrist, hand, finger orthosis because a lot of people with spasticity, uh, they can't, and for the camera, they can, you can see, they can squeeze, they just can't open. But you, when you go to the, uh, let's say, go to get your injection, if you take away their PIP flexion, they're no longer going to be able to use their hand for three months. And we don't want that either. So the therapist would go in with the patient, they would show the product. This is a functional orthosis. They want to be able to grasp. So please doc, you know, titrate, uh, don't do as much. Try to avoid the flexor digitorum superficialis. That's the middle joint that bends. Try not to do too much because if you take that away, then you're going to be firing other muscle groups. And for the therapist, they'd be doing more of an intrinsic plus where they would uh, no longer have PIP flexion. So they would represent, if you're watching the video, you're representing this type of positioning, which is that lumbrical intrinsic plus position. And if you're in that position, you're definitely not going to be using the Sable Flex for those three months. It becomes a paperweight. So my point is, I don't know if it's advocated as much, but it should be if it's not having that neurotherapist available with the patient to go see the doctor. Because remember, you're only seeing this patient every three or four months for 20 minutes, where the therapist is seeing this patient for hours per week. So they know what's going on. Do you guys have those conversations with the therapists? And, and I know you know where to inject, but usually there's more to the story sometimes. Uh, yes. The, well, luckily for me, in my situation, my, my clinic and their clinic are right next to each other. So we have those conversations very frequently. Now that we have electronic medical records, they'll just tell me what they want. That's good. <laughs> the therapist will say, I need this. This is the problem. Or please look at this. Sometimes they're nice about it, but they'll yeah, yeah, let yeah. me I think I have a decision here. No, but but uh, yes, it's very important that, uh, especially if they're using this device, because I, I find the device phenomenal. It gives the patient a world of confidence and, and self-being, and so you do not want to take you know go backwards. I, I should say, in those patients, I definitely use bio EMG feedback to make sure that I'm not overdoing it with the flexors. Yeah, no, the flexor I agree. Compartment. Okay, funding. You know, sometimes I'll talk to patients and they're saying it's not covered. Is it, a, is it a problem getting Botox covered for stroke survivors? You know, my, I don't even know if it's if Medicare, maybe Medicare covers it, but private insurance doesn't. What is the reimbursement situation? Medicare does fund it. Medicaid, state Medicaid also funds it. The private insurance companies, um, now that it is FDA approved with appropriate documentation, also fund it. The Allegan, the company that produces Botox or manufactures Botox, they also, uh, because many times there's high copays. We can talk about the copays that are sometimes go with the treatment. And they uh, offer programs to help offer financial assistance for the copays. And if you do have a doctor who's doing it, you can ask them about that resources for that or to how to apply for those uh, funds. Okay. 
From a research standpoint, when you think about OTPT, you've been, you've been around the therapist for a long time. How do you think you know, the OTs and the PTs can best treat these patients suffering from spasticity with a combination of a neurolytic? Um, we talked briefly about the goals, the major goals are not a lot of the goals at the end of the day that are home run. You know, we talked about pain management, which is a big one, no doubt about it. We talked about, you know, keeping the hand loose so it can put on a AFO or a hand splint or keeping the foot loose as well. Talked about just trying to have more flexibility in the limb. You know, the home run is getting the hand back. And, you know, if you comb the research, and this is more also for the patients here, if you comb the research, you know, people confuse spasticity with stretching, thinking stretching will help reduce spasticity. So remember, there is a uh, contracture is not a spasticity problem. Those are two different things. You know, if you think about it from a, for the patient's perspective, if you suffer a stroke and, you, and you're weak and you can't move your limb and you start to become spastic over time, you're going to create soft tissue shortening, which will lead to contractures. So then you're going to try to address the contractures. And this is where it gets a little confusing for patients and therapists in your role. So can we stretch muscle and tendons? Yes. We, we know that you can do serial casting. We know that you can, you know, there was a study done, you know, I think it was in Brashear's book talking about more than 48 hours of constant stress to muscle muscular tendinous junction will lead to increased sarcomeres in series. Conversely, if you're shortened for more than 48 hours, it can lead to re reduction in sarcomeres. So we know we can actually manipulate uh, range of motion, but that has nothing to do with spasticity. Once you stretch and reverse a contracture, you're still spastic because that's a brain problem, not a peripheral joint problem. So when I look, when I think about research, I think about OTs and PTs, you know, obviously stretching comes to mind. People want to splint, thinking splinting is going to reduce spasticity. Again, we're still, are we going to affect sarcomeres? Are we going to affect the ability to improve range of motion? Yeah. But what do you think is going to happen? The spasticity is still there. Eastim, same thing. You know, I do Eastim a lot. I'll, I'll Eastim, uh, for instance, uh, if they have a hard time opening their hand, they have spastic flexors. I'll put Eastim on the extensors because every time they fire their extensors, they're relaxing uh, the antagonist in that position. I like to stretch and do Eastim at the same time. But a lot of these things, is in, they're inconclusive when it comes to, did we have long-term benefit when it comes to reduction in spasticity? So yes, stretching can reduce hy reflex hyperexcitability, but temporarily. I can weight bear for 30 minutes and I'll get some, you know, by the time I'm done weight bearing, the patient's nice and loose, but by the time they get to their car in lot C, 30 minutes later, they're tight as the drum again. So from my perspective, the only true way, and this is what I want, long-winded way of asking you, to reduce spasticity is if you can manipulate and affect neuroplasticity. By you doing Botox, by me stretching, by potentially doing ESIM, any way to reduce the tone, it sets the patient up for task practice or functional training, which the brain wants. The brain wants to have a meaningful functional task that's purposeful. And if I can stretch that hand out for 30 minutes and get it loose for 30 minutes, coupled with Botox, or I can put them in a Sableflex that allows them to grasp release. The hope is, through what the research says, by you doing meaningful, purposeful tasks repeatedly, that we can rewire the brain. And if we go through those Brunstrom stages of recovery, we're going from flaccid to spastic. Well, the next stage is you start to reduce spasticity. And that's what we're hoping on that level, the Brunstrom stage, you know, going from four to five and then finally to six. So I guess my point 
from your perspective, since you're knee deep in this and, and you work with therapists, you know, how do we get that breakthrough to no spasticity long-term that's just not temporary? Is it through the rewiring process that I explained or is there some other magic bullet that we haven't touched on? No, no. I mean, you, you explained it very well because as I teach my residents, a, a spastic muscle is a weak muscle. And, technic- and, and really, the more spastic a muscle is, the weaker it is. And as we go through neuroplasticity and motor recovery, well, then that spasticity starts to, you know, to abate. The problem is that, is that, as I said, alluded to earlier, every patient is different and they develop different types of problems due to spasticity. And in my practice, many times I have such severe cases that, uh, that I'm, I'm letting the patients know that I'm reducing the muscle uh, tone temporarily, but we have to really get this tendon moving and this reducing the pull of the muscle now will allow the therapist hopefully to get this tendon stretch reset a little bit longer because the shorter the tendon is, the more likely you're able to activate that velocity, you know, stretch reflex. And you've got to try to restore that, that, uh, you know, muscle tendon. A lot of the research indicates that prior when I started doing Botox back in the, in the nineties are finding that doing Botox earlier can be really much more helpful than waiting uh, longer to do it during the recovery, you know, during the rehab process. I totally agree with that because once you get behind, it's really hard to catch back up. And the, and the, and the worst thing for you to ever see or observe is a patient who had this, somehow got this recovery late in their process, yet their tendon is so contracted. And look, look, doc, I can use my fingers now, but their tendon has become so contracted that we can't use it until we have to use a more aggressive surgical method. But those break my heart when you know, the only thing you had to do is try to get them on a good program, and then they had this unrealized uh, uh, recovery. You bring up a good point. So I do believe that, yeah, I do believe the research is leading that earlier is better as far as intervention. So spontaneous recovery may be for the first three months, let's say. How soon can you actually administer Botox? Is there any guidelines behind that? I usually will wait until uh, one or two months after. Usually by that time, I mean, like I said, it depends on where the stroke is. Usually these strokes in the basal ganglia tend to develop tone really fast versus some of the cortical strokes where they'll be really flaccid for a long period of time. And you're just hoping for some tone to, to some tone to kick in. But usually the, these strokes that occur in the basal ganglia usually develop tone really right away. So in my experience, I, I will usually I'm looking forward to, okay, I'm, I'm going to need to do Botox. Luckily, because I see them on the inpatient side, I have a good flow or continuum of how they are and how their tone is emerging. It's the patients who've been out for a couple of years that I, you know, really struggle with their, you know, treatment plan and really need a bimodal approach or a multimodal approach. Luckily, seeing them from day one, I can get a good feel within the first couple of weeks what their tonal pattern is going to look like over the next few months. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, I think this podcast was really helpful from many points of view. It hopefully opened the eyes for patients to consider Botox and other techniques that they haven't potentially tried before. I think for therapists, they have to realize it's not going to, you know, stretching is not the magic bullet. So don't spend 45 minutes doing a stretching strategy that's in calling it a skilled service because it's definitely not a skilled service. We have to come to the conclusion that and to give your patient the best chance to reduce spasticity, we have to rewire the brain. So we have to do neuroplastic strategies. And the strongest evidence to date are things like constraint-induced movement therapy and task training. And if you don't qualify for constraint-induced movement therapy and you don't have the wrist or finger extension, 
then you're going to have to consider, you know, e-stim and functional bracing and other ways to get the hand involved so you can actually grasp and release or fire muscles. You need that contract and relax. You got to get that limb involved somehow. Just doing Botox and bracing and stretching is not going to do anything other than temporary relief. So I think this has been, you know, fantastic, especially going over the contraindications, the indications, you know, the surgical options, as well as the, um, you know, different types of systemic medications. Dr. Milton, this was just, I could do this for three hours. I know you're a busy guy as well, but um, I really appreciate your time today. I know the audience has. We'll definitely put your contact details in the show notes, and, and we'll also put in some, you know, research articles and links for the audience. Any final word as far as hope for patients who are battling spasticity that might be helpful for them to hear today? Well, I think that's having access to an academic center like Emory or academic center in your area is very helpful. These are people who see stroke victims every day, all day. There are some new um, techniques, um, bagel nerve stimulation, things like that. We didn't even touch upon that are, are helpful for recovery. That's a whole different topic for another day. But that's where you're going to find the probably the most skilled providers is in a setting, in an academic setting like this. Wonderful. Yeah, thanks for uh, talking about vagal nerve stim. We'll definitely have to have that uh, as a feature topic as well. Well, Dr. Milton, thank you so much for joining us on the Notepad Plateau podcast. I really appreciate it. I know the audience appreciates it too. And I hope you have a wonderful week doing the great things you do. Well, thank you, Henry. It was my pleasure. Definitely. All right. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the No Plateau podcast. Please make sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date on more stroke and brain injury recovery stories. The No Plateau podcast is intended to give you an insight into stroke and brain injury survivors' journeys. Any opinions given on this podcast are strictly the individual's and we do not suggest that you necessarily hold the same viewpoints as anyone on this podcast. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Reliance on any information provided by the No Plateau podcast is solely at your own risk.